I really try not to use the word entertaining, mm-hmm. right? Entertaining is like a show. It's like tap dancing. It's performing, right? And hospitality. I try to use the word gathering. Mm. I love to gather people, not I love to entertain. And even that language switch, I want to gather you. I talk a lot about nurturing and nourishing, giving people a place to be, not performing, entertaining, wowing. Some people say like, what are you going to do to really wow them? Oh my gosh, that is not the business I'm in. I make a lot of uh, soup, you know? (laughs) I have been known to make a big stack of grilled cheese. I peel a bunch of clementines when we're running low on stuff. The point is, I want to give you a place to be. I want you to sit someplace soft. I want someone to look in your eyes and listen to you for just a couple minutes because that doesn't happen nearly often enough in our culture, but it's never a performance. It's never just for entertainment. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, a show from the humans at OnSite. If you're new to this space and just beginning this journey, we hope these episodes are an encouragement, a resource, and an introduction to a new way of being. And if you're well into your journey and perhaps even made a pit stop at OnSite's Living Centered program or one of our other experiences, we hope these episodes are a nudge back towards the depth, connection, and authenticity you found. In this season, we sat down with a dozen of our favorite experts and emotional health sojourners to dig into the topics that are top of mind for all of us. Transition, relationships, trauma, just to name a few. Part practical resource and part honest storytelling that will have you silently nodding along, me too. This podcast was curated with you in mind. So with that, let's dive in. Hey everyone, today you are in for a real treat. We got to sit down with Ansai alum and friend Shauna Nequist. She is a New York Times bestselling author and frankly, just an incredible human. So we got to talk to her all about hospitality, which is her specialty um, and the importance of it and how to create space for other people and yourself. I loved it. Yeah, Shauna is just so lovely. And Mm -hmm. so I feel grateful for any time that we get to sit down and talk to her. But this conversation in particular was such a gift because it was so practical around how to create space for people well and how to even reimagine kind of what hospitality is. I think a lot of us have a lot of maybe scripts from childhood about entertaining And um, the way that Shauna talks about hospitality is so different, so refreshing, and so accessible. So I hope that you dive right in and love this conversation. We can't wait. We are so excited to be sitting down today with Shauna Nequist. And I realize that you are the first three-peat that we've had on the podcast. So it makes sense that we get to have you. You're one of our favorites. Oh, thank you. Um, I love what you guys are about. And so I'm always happy to help in any way. It's good to talk to you guys. Yeah. So today our conversation is going to be all about hospitality. And I really couldn't think of anyone better to pull on to talk about that. And before we even begin, I want to kind of define what hospitality is for everyone. And so I was digging through definitions and I realized that my favorite definition is actually from you. So we'll just you know, for your own personal ego, we'll just start there. (laughs) We actually use this quote in our on-site journal volume two, that the heart of hospitality is about creating space for someone to feel seen and heard and loved. It's about declaring your table as a safe zone, a place of warmth and nourishment. So tell us a little bit about how you came to define hospitality in that way and why it matters to you. 
Well, you know, I would say I have several different favorite definitions for hospitality, and that's yeah. definitely one of them. Um, another one is um, hospitality is giving people a place to be when they would otherwise be alone. I think that's really important now more than ever. When I think about hospitality, especially in context of what we've all experienced the last couple of years, such a profound sense of isolation. Um, And then the other one that I use frequently that I love is from my friend Sybil. And she says, hospitality is when someone leaves your home feeling better about themselves, not better about you. Whoa. And I just love that. So, you know, and obviously when you hear the word that you hear the word hospitality, it's obvious that it has a a similar root word as the word hospital. Mm -hmm. And I like thinking about hospitality as kind of repair and restoration work. Whatever happened to you in a day, a week, a month, whatever parts of you got bruised or pulled apart that need restoration, that need nourishment, that need to be nurtured and put back together. Hospitality is when we put each other back together a little bit. Hmm. I think about the first time I really got an extended amount of time with you, Shauna. It was right when Bread and Wine, where that quote came from, was coming out and you created this table of like 60 women that were coming together from a lot of different backgrounds and um, even like history of hurt. Mm. And you like opened an event with making it a beautiful space and amazing food that we all sat together and I think began that healing process as a large group of women. And I just remember so much like how naturally that that came from you. You know, it's like you just have such a natural gifting around creating healing spaces And kind of like knowing how to get under kind of the shit (laughs) and create that authentic connection with the tables that you set. And I just am really grateful for the gift and to have experienced it. And I wonder where that kind of came from. Is it just who you've always been? Is it like something that you've nurtured in yourself? Well, at first, thank you for saying that. That really means so much to me. And I do remember that night. And I remember uh, there was a feeling of um, nerves were high at the beginning of the night. And I think with some, I think time around the table can heal a lot of those things. I think we did some of that that night. But I would say, I would say two things that maybe sound like they're in opposition. Um, The first would be, I think the older and older I get, and depending on how you think about this, um, we have different kind of words and concepts for like vocation or calling or identity. I think hospitality is my deepest calling. Mm. I think it's my vocation. I think at the end of my life, when I am face to face with God, however that works, I have a deep knowing that that's the best of me. Yeah. It's, it's what's most natural to me. And when I look at the rest of my life, when I look back, all the other things I've tried to do in my life are really, if you look at it, a function of hospitality. I'm a writer and I love being a writer, but what I'm always trying to say in my writing is you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's room for you. You're not crazy. Um, we all feel like this sometimes. I'm always trying to invite in people who might have felt on the outside of things to kind of bridge distances or collect people up or nurture them. And 
So I think I, my profession as a writer is really just an expression of hospitality. And mm-hmm. so I would say it is my deepest thing. Also, I would say it can feel difficult when you first start doing it, but there are muscles that you can learn and get better at. This is learnable. A lot of people feel daunted by the practice of hospitality at the beginning, and it's okay to feel that at the beginning. It's like any new skill set. You'll get better and better and better as you practice it, and it's not something everyone intuitively knows, but it's something everyone can learn. Mm-hmm. What are those like initial barriers that you kind of hear from people that they're having a hard time overcoming in sort of beginning the process of hospitality? Well, there are a couple that I hear all the time. The first one is about people don't feel like they don't have enough time, right? I'm just so busy. I can't add in one more thing. The second one is um, I don't have the right kind of or big enough or nice enough space. Mm -hmm. The third is what if nobody comes or what if nobody wants to come, right? And those are really natural things to feel. We're all busy. We all have a lot on our plates. It does take a lot of energy and time. It doesn't happen just out of nowhere. Yeah. I love talking with people who feel like they don't have an adequate space because I 100% do not have an adequate space right now. And if I can make it work, anybody can. And then the thing I always remind people about that third thing is people love to be invited. People love to know that you're thinking of them, even if they can't come the first time, even, you know, there are times when I invite people, I know they can't come, but I also know that it feels good to be included and invited. Mm -hmm. And so And I think it's something that just has such exponential return for the Mm. effort that it takes. So yes, we're all busy, but this will give you back so much, so much more than maybe what you did have planned for that night or that weekend. So I think it's eminently worth it to get over those obstacles. Mm. That's so fascinating. I think I have been held back by all of those barriers in my life. And I think just that third one, that fear that we're the only ones that want to initiate. Or I think I often wear the badge of like, I'm the initiator, I'm the inviter. And if I don't do it, then no one will extend it to me. And so I wonder if you maybe relate with that. And if if you're someone who really cares to curate space for people, what does it look like to let others do that for you? And is that something that you have struggled with or do struggle with? And how do we overcome that? Um, you know, I would say a couple different things. One thing that I love talking about is that hospitality, it's important to think about how to be a good host. It's also really important to think about how to be a good guest. Hmm. That's a part of the hospitality equation as well. And so I am most often the host. And at this point in my life, that's okay with me. It's a joy and a pleasure. And I feel like it's some of the best parts of me coming to life. And I'm okay if nine times out of 10, I'm the one who's gathering at our house. I love it. It brings me to life and it's worth it for me. And also, I make sure that when other people invite me into their spaces, I'm a really good guest because I know how much work it takes. Mm -hmm. Um, I notice the things that they do. I communicate. I RSVP. I show up on time. I ask if I can help. I bring my best self to the gathering. Um, And so I think you might be in a season or might just have the the personality where you're most often a guest. That's okay. Mm -hmm. I have a couple friends in my life who are almost never going to be the host just for all sorts of reasons, but they know how to be a really good guest and they contribute something to the gathering. And that's no small thing. Yeah. I, it's funny. I'm in a season, I have a toddler. And so like I, it is a gift to me to be able to host right now because I can put him down and like 
catch the back half of the adult conversation (laughs) with my hands empty. And so I feel like I'm aware of all these events that are coming up that I'm hosting. And I actually sent out a text a few minutes ago about Halloween. I'm like, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I can do. Can you contribute this? And it felt like just inviting people in to the plan and like what I need is like taking all the burden off of like, mm. um, and so I just am acknowledging that, yeah, like it, I think sometimes, yeah, being able to host is a gift for those of us with kids. Yes, absolutely. And I would say what you're mentioning, there are two like really crucial parts of it, communication and sharing the load. So, you know, there are times when someone says like, hey, yeah, they have a little kid or they've got friends in town or for whatever reason, it only works to do it at their house. Or, hey, I would love to host this time, but little kids or friends in town, whatever, that there's no hard and fast rule about who always has to do it and that we can communicate with each other about what works and what doesn't in changing seasons. You know, when Ben's a different age, you'll be like, I need it to not be at my house for this reason or that reason. And the fact that we can have those conversations keeps the community kind of all engaged in the process of hospitality. And then the other thing is, um, I think sometimes people think that I'm like cooking start to finish elaborate meals by myself all the time. That's absolutely not true. There, There are days where I'm like, you know, it would be fun for me. Don't anybody bring a thing. Let me just take care of everything Mm -hmm. that brings me joy. And about 80% of the time, I'm like, please bring cocktails. Please bring a dessert. Please bring extra this. Please bring a clean tablecloth because mine are all in the laundry. The way I host tends to be very much a group project because A, people like to be involved. They like to bring something. And because I need the help. If I have to do it myself, start to finish every single time, I can't do it that often. It's expensive. It takes a lot of time. Expensive. It is. But if we carry it all together, then then we get to do it more, which is always my goal. Yeah. I just think at the heart of this, another barrier is just this fear that I'll have to carry the load all by myself. And so it feels really ah, like graceful and invitational to say, like, how do I bring in the people that I am hosting, that I'm extending hospitality to as a part of that? Because they are like hospitality when it is shared feels more attainable and it, it feels better, right? Like it feels like you're doing a community activity rather than let me show you how great I am. You know, it kind of goes back to that definition. Absolutely. Of, I'm going to feel better about who I am because not because you had your perfect house and showed me all that. It'll actually make me feel worse about myself. <laughs> That's so good. Absolutely. And one thing I, I really am, I, I really try not to use the word entertaining, mm. right? Entertaining is like a show. It's like tap dancing. It's performing, Right. And hospitality, I try to use the word gathering. Mm. I love to gather people, not I love to entertain. And even that language switch, I want to gather you. I talk a lot about nurturing and nourishing, giving people a place to be, not performing, entertaining, wowing. Some people say like, what are you going to do to really wow them? Oh my gosh, that is not the business I'm in. I make a lot of uh, soup, you know, (laughs) I have been known to make a big stack of grilled cheese. I peel a bunch of clementines when we're running low on stuff. The point is, I want to give you a place to be. I want you to sit someplace soft. I want someone to look in your eyes and listen to you for just a couple minutes because that doesn't happen nearly often enough in our culture, but it's never a performance. It's never just for entertainment. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. I wanted to quickly interrupt this interview to share a short story with you. 
A few years ago, I was listening to an onsite alum share their story and something clicked inside of me. I realized that while nothing was wrong in my life, I actually began to wonder if there was more I was missing. What if the overwhelming feeling of anxiety and stress that I had just accepted as my normal didn't have to be a part of my life? What if my relationships didn't drain me and I could actually set the boundaries to create the type of relationships I wanted to exist in? What if I could interrupt the narratives that I had just accepted as fact? Shortly after, I attended Onsite's Living Center program, and I started on my own journey of more. More peace, more clarity, more fun, more wholeness. I want to invite you to explore that more. There's nothing wrong with you. But what if there's more? If you've been considering an on-site program for a while, or if this is the very first time, I invite you to dare to consider the possibility that the more you're seeking is actually something we all deserve. You can explore our offerings at experienceonsite.com or connect with one of our incredible admissions team members at 1-800-341-7432. They'd love to have a confidential call with you and connect you to the right resource for you. That small shift from entertaining to gathering really helped Lindsay and I both reframe how we think about the experience of hospitality. It also prompted us to explore other narratives we might be holding around gathering. Whether it's from our families of origin or cultural expectations, so many of us have become convinced that we have to have it all together to really bring people into our world. I love how Shauna addresses this belief and a phrase she offers us to help us posture how we can approach inviting people into our space. I was kind of thinking before you explained that shift in language, which is brilliant, around um, like what is the role of sort of letting people see your messiness of life kind of in this, like also creating space for them. And so I just wanted to hear of like, how, how do we make people feel like seen, heard and valued and invite them into the natural messiness of our lives? So I think start, some of that starts off with um, like, as a host, you set the tone, right? If when people come over, you're like, oh, uh, everything's not done and da da da, and don't touch this, da, 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 then, then you are letting them know that this is going to be an anxiety ridden process, right? But at the same time, I don't love when my bathroom's dirty and I don't love using someone else's bathroom if it's dirty. So I just really like, I think about just very much the, like not the performative parts of keeping our houses like pristine, but like the functional parts, yeah. clean bathroom. Nothing that you could, you know, not, you're not going to step on a Lego. The uh, toys are cleaned off the sofa so someone can sit on it. Again, not so it's perfect, but so it's an extra place to sit. Mm. Um, so I, I really, I never keep, I, I mean, I live with two teenage boys and my husband who's a musician. Like, it, I cannot explain to you how imperfect our space is and how small. And we keep inviting people into it over and over. And it's just the house we live in, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't, if you want to go to have an extraordinary dining experience, go to a restaurant. But if you want to sit on someone's sofa and have them give you a glass of wine in a jam jar because I broke all my wine glasses and, (laughs) you know, that's the kind of space we're uh, interested in. And I think it helps people lower their defenses. 
I think very few people are going to tell you the truth about their lives when they're Mm. sitting at a stuffy dinner table with starched linens and silver and crystal. I like doing that every once in a while. It's really, well, like at other people's houses, I don't have that stuff. (laughs) But I think people are always surprised at how casual I am about entertaining. And Mm -hmm. that's intentional. I want people to feel, um, there's this great phrase. My sister-in-law actually just sent this to me and I love this. Um, She was reading one of the um, Inspector Gamache series, side note, my favorite series of novels. If you haven't read them yet, I'm jealous. Oh no, I need to do that that right now. Okay. So, okay. I'm going to tell you about it right now. So Louise Penny is a Canadian novelist. She's written, I believe, 19 novels in a series and they're called the Inspector Gamache series and they're wonderful. And so each one like solves a mystery, but more than that, you're kind of just invited into the world of these families, Mm. kids, grandparents, grandchildren, neighbors, good friends. And it's kind of this cozy world you just want to live in. And in one of the novels that she's reading, they explain the phrase, they use the phrase, the French phrase, en famille, which just means as a family. But Mm. in French, the way you use it, so Lindsay, if you were inviting me over for Halloween, and if the plan was to just like sit around your table and maybe have chili, and it's going to be really like cozy and casual, the phrase you would use for that is en famille. Like the way I would invite you into my fam- to my family table. Mm. And that's what I'm always trying to do. I'm trying to help people feel like what they're experiencing is an extension of our family experience, not mm. a performance only for company. That's another word I try not to use. It's company, right? These are our friends. There are guests. There are people. But company and entertaining, I think, puts us into like a, a formal zone, whereas guests and gathering helps us stay connected to the point of it, which is the connection. I love that Mm. term. And I definitely feel like that's what I try to do too. It generally is like casual, like come as family, you know, like I feel like that's how I think of the people that are coming most of the time. And so I love that. I I realized um, I also have Ben's christening is coming up. And so we're doing that at my house. And my mom keeps saying like, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? And so I realized that a lot of like the internalized pressure I feel around hospitality is like a voice outside of myself, yeah. um, which is very well intended. I'm just curious for those of us that have that voice that's like starts to rise up and have us question our original plan for just like inviting family in. Um, how do you sort of boundary yourself around that, I guess? So it's so interesting that you're bringing this up. And correct me if I'm wrong, your mom is a Southern woman. Southern, yes, to the core. Okay, so this is fascinating. I was recently speaking at an event of mostly Southerners. And I was with a good friend of mine, and she grew up in Kentucky, but now lives in the Midwest. And I was talking about hospitality, and people kept asking questions. And afterwards, Emily was like, Shauna, hang on, hang on, hang on. There are some really like generational, very gendered ideas about hospitality for Southern women Hmm. that you don't know about as a Midwesterner who now lives in New York. But she said, when you talk about hospitality, I can see you pressing their buttons and they're thinking about silver and monograms and polishing things and fancy buffets and if it's going to be enough and if it's going to be fancy enough. And she said, a lot of the work you're going to have to do when you're specifically talking to a certain genre of Southern women, 
is giving them permission to find a new way to reframe hospitality on their own terms. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Does that resound with your experience? Yes, really resound. And that's why I think I latched on to the, say the French term again. En famille. En famille. Uh, is that I think that it feels like it's the beginning of it of like, mm-hmm. oh, no, yeah. I'm, it's a lot of people, but I'm inviting them as in as family and they're used to this, you know? I think about how often the voices of other people come into this. And I, I even just in this conversation, I was thinking about how this script or this model we have for hospitality and for hosting and gathering is really just like even generational and unconscious. My mom ran out of food at her wedding and for my entire childhood and to this day cooks like she's feeding 10,000 people when we have people over because it's just like inherent in her. And so I have started to carry that burden. My husband is always saying, we have plenty of food. Why are you still making food? And it's because I've got this voice in my head, like, what if we run out of food? What if someone were uncomfortable? What if, what if, what if? And so I just think that that's so interesting how the voices, that it's not my experience. I've never been at a gathering where I've run out of food, but I'm so afraid of that. I, it's interesting that you bring that up and it totally connects with me. And I would say I have a handful of people in my life who come to me as their like hospitality consultant, which I love, <laughs> but most of what I do with them is help them edit and limit the amount of work they're doing and food mm, they're serving. There's something in us that says like, well, there are going to be seven people. I should probably have 18 different appetizers and seven, di- you know, like we just... And so I think the reason people don't host is because what hosting means is so elaborate and expensive. So I'll give you an example. I have a great friend and I I play this kind of role in her life. And so she texted me yesterday and she said next month she's hosting 20 people and she wants me to help her figure out a menu. And I made some notes, but, and I'm going to talk with her later today, but specifically what I'm going to say is you choose enchiladas, lasagna, or soup. Because they can both be made, and they can all three be made in a double portion ahead of time. What kind of bread goes with it? What kind of easy green salad goes with it? What kind of cheese board? And you only get three cheeses, two meats, what, you know, dot, dot, dot. And then one dessert, like either a cookie or a pastry that goes with ice cream. That's it. And what she doesn't need is for me to brainstorm a million different options. She needs me to make it simple and limited. And I think why I'm some of why I'm so passionate about talking to people about hospitality is because once you put those limits on it, it's pretty doable, right? Mm-hmm. You can make two pans of enchiladas early in the day and then pick up bread and make a green salad right before people come over. What we can't do is meet the wildest dreams and imaginations of what we think every person might want to eat and therefore serve 36 different options. That's not possible. But we drive ourselves nuts trying. For many of us, food is complicated. Food and hospitality often go hand in hand. And myself, as a good Midwesterner, food is synonymous with celebration, grief, struggle, and joy. So I wanted Shauna's thoughts on the complicated nature of food and how we might be able to make a subtle shift or a posture change when it comes to this connection we all make with food and hospitality for ourselves and others. You know, the biggest thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to really normalize a wide range of healthy, quote unquote, acceptable foods and not sort of like fetishize any part of it, right? Yeah. 
So I, I you know, obviously I, I it, in our home and when I entertain, I try not to use words good or bad about food, even clean. I don't love, um, it implies that other foods are dirty. I try to serve a realistic portions, right? If you walk in and there's four portions for 16 people, it's not great. But also if there's 16 portions for four people, you know, we, the way that we serve that stuff can, can kind of give people a little bit of a, a messaging into what we expect. And so I think, you know, I do yummy, creamy, delicious enchiladas and a big, huge green salad. And I put out the dessert, but I don't portion it out for everybody. I'm always thinking about, and I, I do think, I think a lot about dietary restrictions. Yeah. About, I think a lot about people who are sober, especially newly sober. I think about um, people who have a history of eating disorders. And I want to make food a normal, normalized, non-fetishized way of nurturing, but not the only way of nurturing, you know? Yeah. We'll do a cake and also a big pile of sliced apples. We'll do, you know, um, a really beautiful wine and also a couple different flavors of sparkling soda. I always think through the guests and I think through what would communicate. If feeding someone is a language of love, what does love look like for this person? And a lot of times that means keeping a lot of sparkling water on hand for someone who's newly sober or making sure that there's a vegan option for someone who has, who has, you know, recently started a vegan diet. Those things are really yeah. important to me. I also work really hard with allergies for kids because I know, and I know how much anxiety that produces for parents. Yeah. So I'm, I, our kids don't have allergies, but I am like a peanut free zone because I know it's really scary for friends for whom that could be a very dangerous thing. So part of hospitality I have a couple friends who are a little like, um, oh, everybody these days is cutting out foods left and right, and they should just eat what I give them. And I think, well, I think that's not this necessarily the heart of hospitality. I think the heart of hospitality asks, how can I love you through feeding you? And that mm, asks that that means good. we 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 open ourselves. So there are times when I feel like I have like a like a like a beautiful mind spreadsheet with the amount of dietary restrictions and allergies. That's what it means to love people through food, and I'm happy to do it. Mm. I love that. When you get to like the sitting down and eating part of the evening, how do you sort of guide the conversation or steer it so that everybody kind of feels seen, heard and valued and that it has the right amount of depth kind of for the evening? That's good, Lens. Um, I would say that's a great question. I would say a couple things. Um, a lot of the gatherings that I host that is, I don't have an, ex, an expectation for a group conversation of depth. Some of what I'm trying to do is build something over time so that individuals can have a coffee the next day or catch up on the phone the next day. I'm trying to build kind of a loose, rambunctious, loving, extended family so that people can just drop their guard a little bit and have a glass of wine and have a sandwich and feel like they're a part of something larger than themselves. And then if they want a serious follow-up, they feel like they have enough lifelines out around the circle to make a phone call the next day. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. So, so I think especially when it's not a sit-down meal, it's hard to convene. And when there's lots of different generations, it's hard to convene. So I think some of it is just being uh, realistic about what each event can and can't do. Yeah, I would say unless, if you're not at the table, if you're all eating at different times and there are multiple generations, if you have an expectation for a shared deep conversation, you're probably going to 
be in danger of kind of manhandling people into something that's not super effective. Yeah. But I would also say a holiday meal at the table. I really do. Like one thing I've done lots of different times is I had a couple uh, rolls of old wallpaper and I used them to make coasters. And on the bottom of the coaster was a different question for every person. Oh, that's fun. Mm-hmm. And so I let people talk, talk naturally. And then when there was a little lull, I'd say, hey, everybody, if you just want to flip over your question, who has a question that they'd like to ask the group? And then that person can sort of, sort of nominate themselves, but it's a question that I chose. And then it can go for as long as we want. And then I can prompt again, hey, who else has a question that they want to ask? Mm. But that means there's a little bit of like ping pong of leadership around the table. It's not just me with my questions. Yeah. And I try to do a balance of letting it go wherever it's going to go and then being ready to prompt when necessary. One of the things I've loved and gleaned from reading Shauna's books over the last few years is the comfortability that she creates in regular rhythms of gathering with the people in her life. But for those of us who are new in an area or want to expand our circles or simply have a new friend we want to get to know, I asked Shauna to share a few tips and tricks for creating connections and putting ourselves out there when it's time to do the invitation. It can feel really intimidating when casual interactions move beyond passing each other into the neighborhood and inviting someone into your space. Here's what she had to say. We had a situation recently where a friend of Henry's, our older son, they invited him to go on a family vacation with them. We were like, that's amazing. That sounds wonderful. Um, Maybe we should have dinner. (laughs) I don't know you you that well. What are their first names? (laughs) Totally. Um, And so we had over a couple that we had only met very much in passing at school events and stuff. And we had them over for dinner. And we had, and I realized, like, I do a lot of gathering, but it's mostly for people that I know, right? I'm Mm -hmm. like, I have no idea how they eat. I have no idea what they like, what they don't like. I mean, I did, I always ask ahead of time dietary restrictions. So I knew like one little thing, but you know, they don't say like, I prefer this and not that. So I said, well, we're going to give it a shot. And so people love to be asked questions. And so I always, whenever I'm nervous about any social situation, there was something I was going to recently and I was really nervous. And I just had to remind myself, listen, Everybody likes to be asked about their life and their experience. And so when in doubt, mm. ask them about their experiences. Hey, have you traveled at all this year? What was the best movie you saw this year? Are you reading anything you like? What's something you've learned about parenting? Or, And even people like to be asked for advice. Um, so I think of things that I legitimately wish I understood better. And I ask them, hey, you've lived in the city longer than I have. We're trying to figure out summer school for our kids. What's your advice on that? Oh, you're mm. a guidance counselor. We're trying to figure out the college pr- process for Henry. What are the things that you see kids are facing right now? I think most of my social or relational energy is either introducing people or asking questions. And then things kind of go from there. That's so good. Thank you. I also, here's just a couple little things. Um, If there's someone that's coming over and they, you know, that they might feel nervous or they might not know anyone. um, I either give a heads up to an extroverted buddy Mm. or I give them a job to join me in the kitchen. So like Jonathan Merritt, who is just like world's best, he has such a lovely sense of Southern hospitality. And so if there's a friend that I think might feel a little bit like lost at sea, Mm -hmm. the first thing I do is say, hey, have you met Jonathan yet? Here's a couple things about Jonathan. Here's a couple things about you. And then I know that person's going to be fine for the rest of the night. Or when I'm prepping, I really do save three or four kind of non-expert level tasks And when someone looks around, like, I don't know where to be, I give them a job to do. And people love having a job. 
they love feeling like they're contributing in some way and they love feeling like they don't just have to stand there, you know, doing nothing. So uh, slicing, opening wine, lighting candles, refilling anything. Um, a lot of people, when they feel nervous, prefer to have a job. And that's true for me. I will always like find my, my way into someone's kitchen and be like, let me just uh, help you with this. <laughs> so I think that sometimes helps. Well, those are so practical and so helpful. I think a lot of this conversation has been like, and when we think about hospitality, it's pretty outward focused. Like, how do I invite people in and all of that? But I wonder, how do you cultivate hospitality for yourself? And kind of what has that journey been like for you? You know, this was, I remember so clearly when I was writing, it wasn't bread and wine, it was present over perfect. And I was writing a section about something. And there was a friend who I had asked to do an edit of it to someone I really respected, a brilliant writer, very interesting person, deep thinker. And I was reading her comments on a chapter that I was having trouble with. And she said, here's one way to look at it. I'm reading hundreds of thousands of words or tens of thousands of words about hospitality and how much it matters to you. I wonder if what's really happening under the surface here is you're not able to show the same hospitality to yourself Hmm. that you show to other people in your life. And I was like, (gasps) that's right. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's much easier for me to accept all the different parts of someone else in my home, to feed them, to nurture them, to love them, to make space for them, mm-hmm. and then to hold myself to an impossible standard or just drench myself with shame or unkindness. And it helps me to reframe that as if you believe that hospitality really heals and restores us, can you do that healing and restorative work on your own self? And it reminds me that, you know, they always talk about how your kids are listening. Your kids hear, you know, whatever voice you're speaking to yourself becomes the voice they're going to hear in their head. That's Mm. true about the people we love, whether they're in our home all the time or not. If I want to truly extend to people a deep grace, a deep well of love and compassion, and they hear me holding myself to impossible standards, they know there's something off there. They know that that well of grace is not really as deep or as thorough um, Mm. as they thought. And so it helps me to think about it that way. And one of the biggest ways that I practice hospitality toward myself is um, I'd say the two biggest things right now in my life are allowing myself to rest and allowing myself to ask for what I need in really clear ways. That's good. Um, So sleep, not overscheduling, letting myself go to bed early, letting myself stay home from something really fun because I know it's not what my body or my spirit need. And then having the courage to say, I need help with this, or I can't do this all on my own. Or is there an easier way? There's a thing, and (laughs) you would laugh if I explained it to you because it's so remedial. There's a thing in my work life that I'm just absolutely stuck on. Like I just, I can't do it. I can't. Something is stuck. And today in the shower, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask for help. And and it was like, it was like, I thought I invented the, you know, but one of the questions I'm trying to ask myself is, is there an easier way? I tend to be a person who always looks for the hard way. What if there's an easier way? And I think that applies as well, again, to hospitality. There's a hard way. We all know what that is, right? Yeah. But is there an easy way? Is there a box of tacos from your favorite takeout spot and um, a case of Topo Chico and three baby wipes in the bathroom. That's the easy way. And it's okay to take it because the hard way is just going to wear us out in big ways and little ways. Literally doing a box of tacos for the christening. <laughs> yes! Yay! And Topo Chico. Oh, no. Topo Chico is brilliant. I can yes. add that to my yes. list. 
There you go. Make a Costco run. Oh, yeah. That's Perfect. so good. I I think just even hearing you say that, my like spirit went like, it's okay. So I hope that's what people are hearing today. Like, it's okay. Like, put the effort out, but is there an easier way to do it? Because inherently, we all want community. We all want to be together. We we know that we're wired for connection and these barriers keep us from doing it. Yeah, and I think I'm just reminded of the importance of like doing our own work so yeah. that we can truly be present and receive like the gift of hospitality. There's nothing worse than feeling lonely in a crowd of people. And I've definitely been at dinners where I feel that way. Like I, this conversation, I can't enter into it. I'm not... I need to unload this other thing or I've got this really loud voice in the back of my head that is just distracting or so I it I think it is so helpful to remember that you can do all the things right kind of and if you're not in a good place the dinner's still not going to be what you want it to be or need it to be. Yeah. I mean we we joke about it like we joke about it now but there was a dinner it was Aaron's birthday. And he and I were in, it was probably the hardest month of our marriage still to this day. And in the middle of it, I had all of our friends over for a birthday dinner. And I think I burned or ruined or overseasoned or it was like stuff I'd made a million times. The entire meal was just awful. Mm. And I think you could taste it. And I think people walked in and they were like, this food tastes like they're in a fight. And they were right. (laughs) Where is Shauna? We want Shauna back. (laughs) Um, And then the next year, I just, there was like something stubborn in me where I wanted to cook the exact same menu and prove to myself that I could make it taste good again, especially because we were in so much better a place. And I remember being so delighted at the end of that meal being like, okay, it is a litmus test and I failed it last year, but I passed it this year and that's all we can do. So yeah, I mean, there is some kooky thing about how what we're bringing literally into a meal shows through. And so it's worth doing the work to become our best selves um, and bring that best self to everything that we're doing because it shows, it always shows. Yeah. It makes me think about our living centered experience and we talk a lot about healing hospitality. And I didn't really get that concept until I lived it. I think I went into a program being like, I'm going to get better so that I'm a better mom and I'm a better uh, friend and employee and partner. And really, I just needed to get better for myself. And I think being on Onsite's campus and having meals that were made for me and I didn't have to make them and comfortable bedding and I remember I bought pajamas specific for my living centered experience. I think I remember someone saying, okay, this is embarrassing. I remember reading in one of Shauna's books that she, you talk about putting pajamas on and telling your body it's time for rest. And I told myself, I'm going to tell my body it's time for rest at Living Centered. Oh, I love that. Um, I love that. Yeah. I think there's just something about healing hospitality that when someone extends it to you, it gives you the space and the grace to extend it to yourself. And I really experienced that when I did my Living Centered experience. I totally agree. And Lindsay, I feel like I've probably told you this story a million times, but I'm going to keep telling it because it, it, I really, I think of it so often. When I went to onsite, it was a little bit last minute. And so I was staying in a place and I wasn't necessarily going to all the meals like at the center. Um, I was on a di- little bit of a different schedule and you bought me groceries. And I could literally to this day still make a list of every single <laughs> thing you brought me. I was in an incredibly fragile place I was doing very difficult work and 
the avocado and the toast and the butter and the creamer and the apples and the things that you brought me. You know, we were referencing this earlier. I'm very rarely a person that people bring food to, right? Like a, yeah, um, the high I, pressure game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> but it, to this day, that was five or six years ago. And I still remember all those things. And I felt cared for and loved in a very mm. specific way yeah. through those couple of bags of groceries. I will never forget it. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, as we rounded out this interview, I asked Shauna if we could do a rapid fire on two subjects I know she loves the most, books and food. So here we go. All right, what's the best book you've read in the last year? Uh, Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead. Mm, It's been on my list. It's incredible. It's very long, and it took me about 125 pages to get into it, Okay, um, which is a lot when you're not into it. But then it it's like, this is what fiction can do. This is how fiction can change the world. It's extraordinary. I'm glad that you said that it took you a long time to get into it. Because I struggle with her books in particular yeah. around mm-hmm. that sometimes. And then I quit too early. So I think that that will be the encouragement I needed to stick with it. Page 125. That's all. <sighs> you, and, and then you'll like abandon your responsibilities until you finish it. And I still miss the characters. I think about them all the time. So mm. totally worth it. We've been talking a lot about food. And about creating an environment. So what is a food that tastes like home to you? Oh, that's such a great question. What is a food that tastes like home to me? Oh, it's interesting how hard that is for me. I mean, I have a lot of, so the, one of the things that popped in my mind is if I'm ever feeling like sick or sad, if I wake up in the morning feeling sick, I don't drink coffee. Instead, I drink really strong black tea and then toast with butter and a little sprinkle of salt. So toast mm-hmm. and butter and salt and really strong tea will always feel like maybe like I'm homesick, like it's comforting. Mm -hmm. But also just yesterday, I just had a couple minutes and Henry was coming home and I wanted to make him something. And I just grabbed a bunch of things and I made him a very quick curry. And I think curry is one of those, like, when I don't know what to do, my hands just like start making it on their, of their own volition. You start with an onion and then the garlic and then the ginger and then the curry paste and then the coconut. And that feels really familiar and homey. And I think my kids and Aaron would say like, that tastes like being in our house for sure. Do you have a brand of curry paste yeah. that you recommend? Yes, I do actually. And it's so funny that you mentioned that because so I, I think it's, I'm going to look it up. I just took a picture of it because I wanted to post about it because I'm so happy about this one. It's the May Ploy, M-A-E, new word, P-L-O-Y. And it's in like a, like almost like a, it looks almost like a pint container of ice okay. cream. Um, but I get the red curry paste and the green curry paste. And I like them both a lot. And I had been using them, but I wasn't sure, like, is that like legit? Is this whatever? And then I took a cooking class here in the city, a week-long class about a year and a half ago. And when we made anything with a curry flavor, our instructor used that paste and says it's her favorite and her, it's her go-to. So that gave me a little bit of Great. confidence. And they're enormous. You can order them on Amazon and they're big and they'll last forever. Um, and so you can use the red or the green. And then you're not like mixing your own curry spice. I feel like sometimes curry powders are a little bland. Yeah. Um, but this paste, the red curry paste is delicious. You took a week-long cooking class? Tell us about that. I did when, um, let's see, there's this lovely little window when your book is done, but it's not out yet. And you know that like once it's, once it, you get into launch season, you're going to be so busy, but there's this like beautiful magical window where you're not busy for the first time mm-hmm. in a long time and you have no book to work on every day. And so a friend of mine and I did a little research and there's a place in New York called the Institute of Culinary Education, ICE, I-C-E. And they do like evening classes, but they also do like week-long classes. And so I took a 
my friend Jennifer and I took a week-long fine dining class. So it's all the sauces, all the butchery, all the proteins, all the fancy desserts, um, everything. And so you cook all day. And then at like 3.30 in the the afternoon, you clean up everything and you set all the tables and you eat together everything that you've cooked all day. And it's just incredible, super enjoyable, actually way more affordable than I would have predicted. And Jennifer and I ended up sitting across from two women who we have now become friends with. And the four of us uh, go out to dinner around the city, which is really fun. Oh, so fun. Totally recommend it. All right. So I have read, Shauna, that you have read cookbooks like they're novels in different seasons of your lives. So what are your favorite cookbooks? So there are two that have just come out that I am so excited about. Um, And I keep talking to people about them. And I don't know if you guys do this, but there are people that like I follow on Instagram and I think we're friends, but we are not. We do not know each other. And one of them is Dan Pelosi. So on Instagram, he's Grossy Pelosi. And he lives in Brooklyn and has this like very charming boyfriend and they cook all these amazing meals. And I feel like I know them and I don't. But you should. You should. You're close. I should. I would love to. Yes. Uh, We're going to invite him to happy hour sometime this fall. Um, We messaged a little bit about that. and I will let you know when it happens. Um, But his cookbook, Let's Eat, is like Italian-American comfort food by way of Brooklyn. And it's Mm. the styling is beautiful and it is just delicious stuff. And I've like bookmarked so many things already that I'm really excited about. Is it like a cookbook that you like look at and aspirationally want to cook? Or is it like one that's kind of accessible? That's I feel like there should be like a number scale yeah. on cookbooks or yeah. something. It, it, it's not overly difficult. And it's very oriented toward like comfort and mm-hmm. gathering in, in kind of casual ways. It's a lot of family recipes updated. So on one hand, I don't want to say it's not aspirational because like I absolutely want my cooking to look like his and it's very beautiful and all that stuff, but it's not overly difficult. It feels very approachable to me. Okay. Like I do have cookbooks where like, I love reading them and I'm like, I am absolutely not making any of these things ever. And this is not that this is like, Oh, I can handle these. This is doable. Yeah. It's very good. I really like it. And then um, Adina Sussman just had a cookbook come out called Shabbat. And so she is an Israeli American who splits her time between the U S and Tel Aviv and it is, um, it's very like brightly colored, fresh. I love Mediterranean flavors. I love the way she talks about the way Shabbat works in Jewish culture, even for non-religious Jews, that it's sort of the center point of gathering mm. to prepare food together and share meals together. So whether or not you have a religious connection to that tradition, it can be a family or cultural connection that brings people together. And the food is gorgeous and delicious. And so um, I'm cooking a lot out of both of those right now. I'm really excited about them. I um, have been thinking a lot about Shabbat lately. That was a practice. I've been to Israel Israel before, and it was a practice that we had of the group that kind of went, kind of kept up doing Shabbat afterwards. And they disconnect from all electricity, practicing Jews disconnect from electricity. So everyone's like very present in the moment and there's different my word for it would be like liturgies or prayers mm. that people say. It's just rhythms of an evening. And I love the idea of creating that sort of practice around husband, you know, and the hospitality. So I'm going to pick that one up. And I also mm. love Mediterranean food. So that yes. sounds great. That sounds lovely. Oh, you'll love it. It's beautiful. The last question I have that made me think, Lindsay, based on that is, can you talk about 
like, I like liturgy. I like practice. I like traditions of like, hey, we always gather in this way, like versus the spontaneity of come over, I'll pull what's out of my fridge. We'll do this. Like, what does that balance look like for you? That's a great question. So one of the projects that I'm working on, and not right away, but I'm really excited about it. I think I'm probably not supposed to mention it, but now I am. So we moved to New York five years ago, and we live uh, far away from our extended family. Mm -hmm. And so do most of our closest friends and neighbors. And -hmm. what that means is we spend most of our holidays together. It's kind of hard to travel in and out of the city on holidays. That's when flights are really expensive, or when the weather's bad, you're always going to get delayed. So we've sort of decided to, we spend most of our holidays together. We, and we do a lot of like, we watch the Super Bowl together and we watch the Grammys together and we do a big Memorial Day potluck and a big 4th of July gathering and a big Labor Day thing. And, and we do Christmas night together and Easter. And what I realized is in the five years that we've been here, we've sort of developed some food traditions around the calendar, around Mm. those holidays and flavors. And a lot of them are like, you know, so-and-so's biscuits and gravy that she used to have at her mom's house, but now she makes here in the city. And -and so-and-so's cookies that she used to make when she was living abroad, but now she makes here in New York. And we've all brought all of our traditions from all over the country and all over the world. And now we've got five years of celebrating them together. So some of what I'm doing is putting together sort of a, a collection of recipes and menus so that you could join the way we've done that, but also that so that you could build your own. Yeah. Maybe your Easter is always tacos, or maybe you're, I guess, it, maybe I'm hungry for tacos. I keep bringing them up, <laughs> but maybe you always do on Christmas Eve, you do spaghetti and meatballs. And so I would say food is so sense-based and, and mm-hmm. so it has such strong ties to memory making. So I really like having a rhythm throughout the year. I think that's another hospitality thing. I love the idea of repertoire cooking as opposed to always trying something new. I love the idea of someone getting really good at two or three things. Mm. And then every, you know, so Mackenzie, you come up with a, or learn a lasagna recipe that you just love. And then people know when they go to Mackenzie's house, it's that great lasagna that she makes. It's not like, what do you have for me now? Oh, I've had your lasagna, right? (laughs) But it's that sense of memory and tradition that, you know, she always makes this for us. And so I think I, when it's a casual gathering, I just absolutely, whatever's in the fridge, you get what you get, <laughs> we make it up. But especially when it's tied to something on the calendar, I really like there being some taste memory that uh, you access and, and build sort of a sense of familiarity and expectation around. So good. Yes. Can't wait for that. Yes. Bring it out Thank into you. the world. We're ready. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time. This was so good. I absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Great to talk with you guys. Thanks for listening to the Living Center podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love for you to consider leaving us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. It only takes a few seconds to navigate to the show in your app and select the stars to begin your rating. It helps more people find the show and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.